Well, good afternoon, St. Paul's. You uh, sound enthusiastic today. That's great. Um, I'm glad you're enthusiastic because I'm enthusiastic this afternoon uh, because today we're looking at one of my favorite passages. This passage actually has one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Uh, and I love this passage because it's all about the idea that God really is good. Uh, those of us who have been part of the Christian culture for a while now have probably at some point heard an exchange that goes like this, God is good all the time, God is good, yes. And that little saying, I think, is the essence of what James is saying here. God is good all the time. So do you believe that? That God is truly good? I'll admit that there have been times in my life where I have really struggled with this idea uh, that God is good. Because the world is a place where a lot of terrible things happen, isn't it? Um, a lot of beautiful things happen, but a lot of terrible things happen too. About a month ago, uh, we had a time of corporate prayer for the mass shooting uh, that took place in Orlando. It was terrible. Uh, and just this last week, if you've been following the news, uh, you know that there were at least two more instances of uh, black men being killed by the police. Uh, this time, Alton Sterling of Baton Rouge and uh, Philando Castile of Minnesota. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the videos. Uh, the video evidence seems very clear to me that neither of these men had done anything to warrant uh, the kind of force that was used against them. And of course, then there was the other incident uh, not long after of uh, some police being shot by snipers, uh, a sniper, excuse me. Um, just terrible, uh, terrible stuff. And alongside those tragedies, I think we can be confident that there were many other less publicized incidents of violence and assault and injustice over this last week. Uh, because these things happen every single day. So, how is it that we can say God is good all the time, all the time? God is good. Uh, Philando Castile, one of the victims of police violence this last week, he had that very phrase uh, posted recently on his Facebook uh, profile. Can we really say that, honestly? Or do we have to stick our heads in the sand like an ostrich and pretend that all the evil and suffering in the world isn't really there? Uh, well, I am not a fan of what I like to call ostrich theology. That's the term I've come up with to refer to any kind of theology that makes statements about God while ignoring aspects of our experience or ignoring significant aspects of what Scripture teaches. Uh, I think that when we do theology, and just in case anyone is unfamiliar with the term, theology just means the study of God. So your theology is when you talk about God and you make statements about what God is like and how God operates. Um, I think that when we do theology, we should do theology with our eyes wide open. Uh, so if we're going to say something about God, it should be something that we could potentially say to Alton Sterling's grieving family, or something that we could say to Philando Castile's fiance, um, or something that we could say at the gates of Auschwitz during World War II, and it would still be relevant, and it would still be meaningful. I think that's what it means to do theology with our eyes wide open. Now, I do believe that we can say God is good all the time. Uh, and it doesn't have to be ostrich theology. 
And I think what James says in this passage that we're going to look at helps us to be able to do that. So let's take a look. Uh, This is James 1, verses 13 through 18. James 1, 13 through 18. Uh, I guess the notation is wrong there, but the scripture is correct. So, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for the chance to look at the book of James together. And God, I pray that you would help us to um, have insight into what we read, God. I pray that um, as I speak, Lord, that um, anything that's said that is of you um, would be received. Anything that is not would uh, fall on deaf ears, God. Um, I pray that you would help us to take take you at your word and... uh, to understand uh, exactly what it is that your spirit is, is trying to communicate. And Lord, we are mindful uh, today of the brokenness and evil and injustice and pain that exists in the world. And we pray uh, for redemption and for reconciliation and for peace. And, uh, and we pray, God, that uh, even us now looking at this passage and taking it in could play a part in leading to that, that peace and reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember from the last couple weeks, James has been talking about how to face trials. And what he does in this passage is that he shifts into talking about the subject of temptation. Uh, Temptation, simple definition, it's the desire to do something that we should not do. And the subject of temptation is very relevant to what James has been talking about because temptation is a form of trial. Uh, when we're tempted to do something that we know we shouldn't do, the process that we go through of overcoming that temptation is a form of trial. It's a challenge that we're called to endure, and hopefully it's a challenge that in the end leads us uh, to develop perseverance. That's what James talked about in the passage we looked at two weeks ago. And that helps us to become more mature and complete people. Um, Temptation is usually an aspect of every trial. Uh, For example... If you're going through the trial of not having enough money, you might be tempted to steal or to sell drugs in order to get money. If you're going through the trial of a life-threatening illness, uh, you might be tempted to get really angry at God or reject your faith out out of spite, out of anger. So temptation and trial tend to go hand in hand because every trial challenges us to grow in character, but every time we're challenged to grow in character, at the same time there is a temptation to take a shortcut. So temptation itself is a type of trial, and it's also an aspect of just about every trial that we go through. And what James wants us to remember as we're in the midst of this trial of temptation is that God is not the one who tempts us. God is not the one who tempts us. Now, so for some of us, 
I suspect that you might be hearing that right now and thinking, well, yeah, it sounds like such a no-brainer. You know, why, why even bother to say that? Um, you, might think, you might be thinking, well, of course God doesn't tempt us. If he did, he'd be trying to get us to do what he tells us not to do. That doesn't make any sense. That sounds like God would have multiple personality disorder if he was doing that. Why would he ever do anything like that? Why would anyone think that he would do anything like that? Well, I do think that whether we realize it or not, sometimes we suggest or imply that God does just this. And I can think of at least two reasons why we might claim that God tempts us to sin. The first reason is because it's a way of removing some of the blame for our sin. Uh, we human beings have a tendency to do what's called blame shifting. Uh, we're always looking for a way to downplay our responsibility. And that goes all the way back to Genesis, first book of the Bible. Uh, you might remember that in the story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden by God, and they have a multiple of good things that they can enjoy and do, but they're just given one restriction. They're told, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God never tempts them to eat from this tree, but a serpent comes along, and the serpent tempts them, right? And, of course, they fall to the temptation. They end up partaking of the tree. And when God confronts Adam about this, Adam does textbook blame shifting. Uh, so God says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So notice we've got the double blame shift there. You know, first he blames Eve and then he also blames God. He blames Eve because she gave him the fruit, and God because he gave him the woman. Um, it was the woman, the woman that you put here with me. And just like with Adam, we have this same tendency to shift the blame from, um, for our own sin to those around us or even to God himself. Um, now, I don't think you hear many people t today saying, uh, God tempted me to steal that car, or God tempted me to cheat on my wife for lie on my taxes. But people will blame God for their sin in more subtle ways. Uh, I know I've heard people say things like, oh, I know I lost my temper there, but you know, I'm just a fiery personality. That's just the way God made me. Or, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, but I'm just a very sexual person. Um, basically, there's a tendency to justify behavior that's sinful by saying, this is, this is just who I am. Which is a subtle way of pointing the finger at our maker and saying, this is not my fault. This is your fault, because you made me this way. And what James is saying here is, no, you really, you can't say that. You can't put the blame on God, because God is not tempted by evil, and God does not tempt anyone to do evil. He's not like that. So that's the first reason that we might claim that God tempts us to sin. A second reason that I can think of is that we're overly concerned with protecting the idea of God's power. Overly concerned with protecting the idea of God's power. All right, what in the world do I mean here? Let me explain. As Christians, we affirm the idea that God is powerful, right? Uh, scripture presents us with a powerful, almighty God. There's no doubt about that. Another way of putting it is that God is sovereign. Now, I have noticed... Uh, that there are some within the body of Christ 
uh, that seem to think that the most important quality of God to uh, acknowledge and proclaim is that God is powerful. God is sovereign. But the difficulty that we face when we're making that affirmation that we can't deny, we don't want to stick our heads in the stand, the difficulty that we encounter is that the world is filled with a lot of evil and sin, right? So that leads us to the question, if God is, is sovereign, if he's all-powerful, why is there so much evil and sin in the world? If God is completely in control, why isn't everything perfect? Um, why did the Orlando shooting happen? Why did Alton Sterling and Philando Castile die this week? Why did the sniper kill all those cops? Why is the world filled with injustice and abuse? Now, if our number one concern when we're talking about God, when we're talking about theology, is to affirm God is powerful, then we can end up in a situation where if we're not careful, we start saying things like, well, it's God's will for Alton Sterling to die. It was God's will for the Orlando shooting to happen. It was God's will for the World Trade Center to fall on 9-11. You see the connection there? If our main concern is to affirm that God is powerful, then we have a hard time saying that anything that happens is not his will, even sin. I'm sure for some of you, uh, what I'm saying sounds very strange, uh, but I worked in college ministry for six years, and I encountered several young guys during that time who had a tendency to think this way, um, who seemed to think that acknowledging God's absolute power and control was just the most important thing to do. Uh, and they seemed to think that there was something very pious, something very reverent about doing this. And I even heard a story about one of these guys, uh, bless his heart, sharing his testimony. And at one point in his testimony, he included the line, the Lord led me to sin. And uh, I thought, man, someone needs to be reminded of James 1.13. <laughs> For God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. We should recognize that God is powerful, because he is. But we also need to recognize that there are many things that happen in the world every day that are not his will. And the reason for that is not because God isn't powerful, but because God is so much more than just power. God is almighty, yes, but he is also love. And love isn't just concerned about power. Love is concerned about relationship, about trust, about freedom. And love doesn't just hoard power, but love has a tendency to share power. And I believe that if we look at the story of Scripture as a whole, we see a God who chooses to share his power with his creation. Uh, God is powerful, absolutely. He is more powerful than anything else. Uh, everything in creation is wholly dependent on him for existence and for sustenance. But when God created the world, he chose to give us, us fragile human beings, power. He also chose to give angels power, significant power. And that power has the potential to be abused. And it has been abused. It is abused. And that's why we live in a world where sin exists. That's why we live in a world of violence and injustice. But what James wants us to know is that God is not to blame. 
Sin is real, but God's hands are clean. He does not will us to sin. He does not tempt us to sin. God is good. Now you might say, okay, well hold on here. How do we maintain that God really is sovereign if we think this way? That is, that's important. Well, theologians have wrestled with this question. People much smarter than I have struggled with it. So I'm going to say something here. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but maybe this will help you. This helps me. Um, the word sovereign, when we talk about it in relationship to God, has gained this connotation of complete and absolute exacting control over everything. But sovereignty, that word traditionally, hasn't meant that. It's a political term. It's a term used to refer to a king. And uh, now a king doesn't usually control absolutely everything in a kingdom. Uh, what a king does is he establishes laws and boundaries in a kingdom. He establishes limits, and he enforces them, right? Uh, he puts parameters on what the subjects in the kingdom can do. And I would like to suggest that we need to think of God's sovereignty a little bit more like that. Just, just as in an earthly kingdom, there are things that could happen that would break the king's heart, so also with God in his creation, there are things that happen that break his heart. That doesn't mean he isn't sovereign. It just means that what God's sovereignty looks like might be a little different than we sometimes think. So all that to say, I just want to encourage us. Let's not emphasize God's power so much that we end up blaming him for all the sin in the world. I've seen that happen when people talk about God, and it concerns me a lot. It really does. Because one of the things that we're commanded not to do in Scripture is blaspheme God. And uh, we tend to think of blasphemy as using uh, Jesus' name as a curse word. And uh, I do think that's blasphemy. But blasphemy, when you get down to the root of that word, what it actually refers to is slander. Uh, it's saying things or doing things that hurt God's reputation. Now, using the Lord's name as a swear word, that doesn't do anything good for God's reputation, because it doesn't show him the reverence, the respect that he deserves. Uh, so that is a form of blasphemy. But I, I would argue that suggesting that God wills all of the sin and evil in the world is a much more severe form of blasphemy than saying his name when you stub your toe. I mean, honestly, what could be more harmful to God's reputation than suggesting that he's the author of sin? So just to, to say that every injustice, every assault, every murder is ultimately something he determined would happen. So we need to be very careful about making those kinds of claims about God. We believe that God can bring good out of every situation, right? That is our hope. That is, our, that is what our faith is all about, that even when evil takes place, God can transform it. God can, can use it to make something glorious and beautiful. But the evil itself, that's not, God doesn't, God is not the author of that. God does not will that. So, as James reminds us, God doesn't tempt us to sin, um, and God is not tempted by evil. God is good. So if we're going to avoid blasphemy, we have to be faithful to proclaim that God is good. Saying that God is powerful isn't quite enough, right? Because power in itself isn't good or bad. 
Uh, Hitler had power, Stalin had power, Saddam Hussein had power, and God has power, but God is also good. And we have to proclaim both of those things. Otherwise, I, I, I'm afraid that we risk blaspheming God. And I think it's important when we talk about God's power to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is supposed to be the fullest revelation for us of what God is like, what God's character is. Jesus is the incarnation of God. And what we learn from Jesus is, yeah, God is powerful, right? But our God is also a God of incredible humility and restraint. Because our God, the self-sufficient first cause and creator of everything, became a baby. And he suffered and died on a cross. So what power looks like from God's perspective is not just the ability to do absolutely everything by force. God is more than just power. God is also love. So after reminding us that temptation doesn't come from God, James talks about where it does come from, right? He says, each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's a couple things I'd like us to notice here. First, James says that the root of our sin is our own evil desire. Right? Not the will of God, not God's desire, but our evil desire. So once again, James is emphasizing this point. God is good. Sin doesn't have its origin in him, but in us. Second thing I want us to notice is that word enticed. Enticed. In the Greek, uh, this word has the connotation of baiting a hook. So think about fishing, right? And James is saying that we have certain desires that are like fishing lures. And we think, ooh, I'd like to pursue that desire. Uh, it looks shiny and delicious. Uh, but when we actually act on that desire and pursue it, it hooks us. And it hurts. And like a fish caught on a line, it leads to death. It's a powerful image. The third thing I'd like us to notice is that sin doesn't arise until we act on our desire. Notice that James says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. In other words, there is a difference between being tempted and sinning. Being tempted is the first step towards sinning, but it isn't the sin itself. Uh, in other words, it isn't a sin to notice the lure if you're like a fish. It's not a sin to go, oh, there's a lure over there. What's a sin is when you start to move toward the lure. Right? All of us struggle with having evil desires. It's normal. Uh, we shouldn't dwell in guilt or self-hatred just because we have bad desires. Uh, but we do need to be careful not to act on those desires, not to uh, flirt around with them, because uh, we need to recognize that if we entertain them, like the fish with the lure, we get hooked and we slowly get dragged away, like the fish. Next, James gives us two of my favorite verses in Scripture. I said that this passage had one of my favorite verses. This is it. Um, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So some of the people... Uh, during James's time, have been trying to blame God for their sin. They have been trying to suggest that God had some part to play in causing the evil in the world. And what James says in response to that is, do not be deceived. 
Do not be deceived, because evil is not caused by God. It doesn't come from God. Instead, what comes from God is every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift. And this verse is a reminder that not only does evil not have its root in God, but everything that's good and beautiful has its root in God. Uh, God is like the tree, and all the good and beautiful things that we see experience in the world are like leaves that have grown off that tree. Around the 4th of July, my social media uh, feeds were full of incredible sunset pictures. Uh, some of you guys either saw the real sunset or may have seen the pictures. <laughs> um, we had some amazing sunsets. And when we see something like a beautiful sunset and feel that appreciation welling up within us, we need to remember that that good gift is ultimately from God. The sunset itself is a gift from God, and the ability to see it and appreciate it is also a gift from God. So when we look at the world, when we experience the world, and we see the good things, the sunsets, the taste of great food, uh, fun and laughter with friends and family, we need to remember every good and perfect gift comes from God. He's the source of those blessings. Wherever there is beauty and truth and goodness, God's presence is near. And I love the imagery that James gives us when he describes this. He says that all these gifts come down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's very poetic. Uh, the heavenly lights that are referred to here are the sun and the moon and the stars. And James is saying that God is the father of these celestial bodies. Uh, humanity over the course of history has felt this compulsion to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And uh, what James is saying is that the one who really deserves worship is the one that created all those heavenly lights, the father of the heavenly lights. And James remind us, reminds us uh, that unlike the heavenly lights, which change from our perspective, uh, you know, sometimes the moon is full, sometimes it's not. Sometimes the sun rises, sometimes we can't see it because we've turned. Um, James is telling us that unlike those things, God just does not change. He does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, once again, God is good and he is always good. He doesn't ever take a vacation from being good. His light of goodness never goes out. He is always unwaveringly, unceasingly good. Finally, in the last verse of our passage, James reminds us of one of the ways that God has been good to us. He says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. So in other words, uh, God has given us the good and perfect gift of the gospel. And the gospel message is essentially that even though our evil desires have at times led to sin, even though our sin is truly against God's will, there's not some game going on here where God's like, actually, I really do want you to sin. No, even though it truly is against God's will, our sin does not have to lead to death. Remember, James said that sin, uh, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. But the gospel message tells us that there is a way for our evil desires and sin not to end in death. Because it says that Jesus, when he died on the cross, bore that penalty of death in himself uh, on our behalf. And now, because of what he has done, we can be made new. We can experience this rebirth. James says that he has given us birth. 
Um, our sin doesn't have to end in death, and we don't have to be ruled by our evil desires. In other words, God doesn't lead us to sin. Instead, he gives us this gift of a new birth where we can experience freedom from sin. So if there's one thing, one thing that I would like all of us to take away from this passage, it's this. God really is truly good. He really is. That old saying is true. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And why God allows so much sin and injustice and evil in the world is a little bit of a mystery, isn't it? But James doesn't want us to try and solve that mystery by saying that God wills sin. That's what I think the takeaway is here from a, the philosophical, theological angle. Um, he says, no, don't do that. God is not the author of the sin. He is the author of every good imperfect gift. And the great news is that God has a plan to redeem and restore this world that's been corrupted by sin and evil. And it's a plan that perfectly embodies this fact that he's not only powerful but also loving. It's a plan that, that uh, embodies all of who he is, not just a part of it, a part of him. And James says that we, the church, are the first fruits of this plan. Uh, back in those days, the Jews would offer a portion of their harvest to God as an offering. And that was called the first fruits. Uh, before they harvested anything else, they offered the first fruits to God. And James is saying that we, the people of the church, are like the first fruits um, because we're the beginning of a much larger harvest, which is cool. We, as redeemed people, are the sign of a coming redemption of the whole creation. So in other words, things are going to be made right. There will eventually be a world where Alton Sterlings will no longer be shot and killed and uh, where families will not have to mourn over the death of their loved ones. And as we wait for the day when that promise is fulfilled, we should strive as the church to make the world look more and more like that coming kingdom. So God is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that this, uh, this reality, that you, you truly are good, uh, would sink into our hearts and minds. I pray that uh, when we encounter injustice and evil and sin, that we would recognize uh, that you are not the author of that, God, uh, that you will something so much better. And we thank you, Lord, that you are at work uh, redeeming and restoring the world. Um, we thank you, God, that you are powerful and that you um, are able to do what you have set out to do. Um, and God, we want to participate in that. We want to be the first fruits of this, uh, of this coming kingdom, God. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just... Um, you would just remove any uh, images that we might be carrying about who you are that are false, um, any, any images of who you are that uh, keep us from stepping fully into uh, the life that you have for us, uh, that keep us from, from worshiping you in spirit and in truth. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see you for who you are, God. We thank you that you are the Father of the heavenly lights, that every good and perfect gift comes from you. 
And Lord, we, we ask that the world um, would be healed and that you would, you would use us to play a part in that healing. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.